The Standard Deviations podcast is a weekly production that looks at money, mind, and meaning, all through a psychological lens. Each week, psychologist and New York Times bestselling author Dr. Daniel Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest, experts in everything from finance to literature to wellness. Support for Standard Deviations comes from the Guardian Network. You know the old saying, a penny saved is a penny earned? How many pennies would you earn if you skipped your next venti iced mocha half-calf latte or that burger that needed five napkins? Over a lifetime, they add up. Like putting a kid through college add up. Find out where your priorities lie by playing the cash stash dash at livingconfidently.com slash play. Hello and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby, and I am joined today by Corey Phillips, who is a successful financial advisor with the Bullfinch Group in Boston, as well as the co-owner of a retail liquor store, a community advocate that sits on the board of four different nonprofits, a youth sports coach, and a dad times two. So we're going to talk to Corey about how do you do it all, how do you keep it all together. Uh, He's also going to talk to us how as a business owner and entrepreneur, and now as an advisor to business owners and entrepreneurs, he sees the economic landscape changing uh, and what we can do to anticipate those changes. So Corey, welcome to the show. Daniel, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So we were supposed to do this a little while ago and you became a dad for the second time. So what, uh, what, how are things going and what have you been reminded of with a new baby in the house? Well, one thing that I know is that sleep is vital. Um, being on the same page with my spouse is always a good thing. Uh, our little girl now is seven weeks old. So I know we were supposed to talk a couple months ago and uh, I'm glad that we finally had a chance to do that. And just amazing how fast time goes. Uh, my other daughter just turned three and we just had two birthday parties for her, one with family and then one with kids yesterday. And um, yeah, it's just, you really need to be uh, on the same page with your spouse, uh, waking up, who's doing the feeding in the middle of the night, who's changing diapers, who's picking up, who's dropping off, who's staying home with the infant. It's, um, it's, a, it's an awesome time in, in my life right now. It's just, uh, it just is going very fast. And um, like I said, my three-year-old is already pretty much like a little human being. She's telling me what to do. Uh, saying, Daddy, come here. She wants to play. I mean, she's growing up right in front of her eyes. And if you blink, uh, everyone that I know that is a little bit older in life tends to think like, hey, wait till they're 10, wait till they're 12, wait till they're 14. And um, you know, I'm just trying to enjoy every minute I can with them while they're still little and they actually want to spend time with me. That's right. Well, congratulations. There's no better reason to reschedule a podcast than a a new life joining the world. And as the dad of a 10-year-old, I have three kids. My oldest is 10. Um, you know, we recently, we recently passed the, you know, wow, she's, she's more than halfway out of the house phase and it does go really, really fast. And so good for you for, for taking in every moment. So you sit in this fascinating place. You're a financial professional, of course, but you also own a liquor store. And so this probably makes you uh, the most popular guy in, in, in town. But before beginning your job as a financial professional, you, you opened this, this liquor store. Now, mm-hmm. when I think I, I'm the wrong person to ask because I, I don't drink, but this is, this is not the kind of business I think of starting. So what, what led you to pursue a liquor store in particular as an entrepreneurial endeavor? 
So uh, my family actually uh, grew up in the liquor business. My father has been a salesman slash merchandiser. Um, not sure merchandisers are the guys that go and build the displays back when he was in his 20s. Uh, he worked for Pepsi, then Coke, and then he worked for a couple of local distributing companies. And uh, ever since I was about four or five, I've been wearing Rolling Rock shirts and um, any other beer distributor shirts, Coors Light that he could get. And then he slowly worked his way up to becoming a salesman and then sales manager for a company called Martinetti Corporation. Uh, they're based out of Braintree, Massachusetts, which is out in the Boston area. And ever since then, uh, I've always kind of been in the liquor, beer, wine business. My parents then, when I was about 15, bought a local liquor store here in Pittsfield where I was born. And they've owned, they owned that for 20 plus years. So I worked there after sporting events, summertime. I started off in the Redemption Center, and then I became a cashier when I was 16. In summertime jobs, that's where I worked. And when I graduated from college, it was 2008. I actually had a job lined up at Smith Barney and wanted to get into financial services, but the financial crisis happened, and a lot of these companies weren't hiring anymore. So I moved back home, and I had to figure out what my next path was. My father said, there's an opportunity to purchase a liquor store with some real estate property. Are you interested? And I said, yes. So I uh, went ahead, made the purchase uh, with my father and my brother. And uh, you know, we could talk about that business with family, which is always a unique dynamic. But um, you know, it was a great purchase and uh, it's been very successful ever since then. So I, I think a lot about what my kids are going to do. And I, uh, I like to scare myself by reading sort of alarmist pieces on AI and automation and things like mm-hmm. this and thinking, thinking about the future of work. So um, my, my first question would be, you know, what, what your parents do is so formative on, on what you end up doing. You know, you talk about wearing these rolling rock shirts and just having grown up in the business. Um, I was the son of a, I, I am the son of a financial advisor uh, and, you know, uh, through through many twists and turns have found my way, you know, from being a psychologist and a therapist into this world of, of financial services. So one of the things that I like to think about a lot as a dad of three kids is what my kids will do in the future and how I can prepare them for what's next. So my first question to you is, is the liquor store business uh, an industry you would encourage your kids to go into? So my answer would be no, unless there was a, um, a greater plan, a business plan that involved multiple properties, because the liquor business itself, if you don't own multiple businesses, it's almost the law of large numbers, right? The bigger your entity, the better pricing you can get. And that's where liquor stores are starting to become, where you have to own three to five businesses, three or five liquor stores to be able to get those larger purchases because you have to buy 500 cases of a certain product to get the best price. And um, in this day and age, there's a liquor store around every corner. You can buy liquor online. Um, It's just becoming one of those automation where it's more ease than going to that local liquor store down the street. You go to the grocery store, it's convenient. So people are doing that. So the competition has increased, the margins have decreased. And if you don't own the property and you're paying rent or you're paying a loan, um, you're really going to struggle. And then on top of it, it's finding good help and workers. Liquor store business is 24-7. You have to you know, be available 8 in the morning to 10 at night, Monday through Sunday. And um, it really doesn't allow you to have that flexibility unless you have some really good workers 
or good family members that will help you out to be able to have the time with your family, to be able to have a social life, but also have a successful business. So if I were to go and tell my kids, no, that would not be an area. I think the dynamic has changed a lot over the last 20 years that I've seen since I've been in the business. And I just don't see it getting better. Uh, The time is just, you have to work more and more and more and the margins continue to shrink. Now, are you yourself on pace to get to this three to five store number? Are you content to have the one that you have? Well, so my parents have the one and we have one, but we have the real estate and the real estate is what really helped us. We have um, two, two bedroom apartments above our liquor store. And then we have a three bedroom apartment across the street attached to a redemption center. That rent alone generates about $4,000 a month in revenue just for us. Then on top of it, we have the revenue from the liquor store and we've created an LLC through the liquor store to pay rent that way. So, you know, if we were just running the liquor store itself, you're looking at very small margins. I mean, if you can get about 12 to 15% margins, you're doing really well in the liquor business. Um, And you, you know, margins should be a lot higher than that if you're gonna have a successful business. Yeah. So it's more of a real estate play. I've, I've seen McDonald's even mentioned as, as more of a real estate play than anything else. Starbucks, same thing. Uh, it's fascinating to think about uh, something like a liquor store as a backdoor to a profitable real estate venture, but it sounds like that's where you're at in some respects. Yeah. Yeah. And with, with the possibility of maybe just renting the liquor store, right? Maybe if I find a tenant that's willing to rent. So I think having that flexibility gives you a look, it, it gives you the options to choose what you want to do. If you have someone in there that has a great uh, plan and vision, maybe they come in and they rent from you. Now you're getting rent from the liquor store, they're running it, and you're still getting rent from all the properties. I, I always like Macy's because um, I actually, you know, Macy's is a company that I always like to look at. I think their real estate is more valuable than their actual sales of their merchandise. The fact that they own all their real estate is pretty important when you're looking at the stock or just Macy's in general. Yeah, that's fascinating. So, you know, the two things that I thought of, and I, again, I don't know anything about this industry, but the two sort of concerns that immediately came to mind for me, one you mentioned was talent and the other was safety. So start with safety, if you would. It seems like a liquor store would be a natural sort of uh, target for robbery or theft. How how have you protected against that? How do you think about uh, guarding against that risk? So um, we have a couple things that we have in place. We have uh, camera systems um, inside and out. Uh, we make sure the parking lot is lit up brightly at night. The area we, our liquor store is in is definitely a blue collar uh, community neighborhood. So that's actually been beneficial for us. We do a lot of events in the community. We'll do a lot of you know beer tastings on Saturdays, wine tastings on Sundays. Um, we really get involved in the community to know who our clients are that are coming in. And, you know, we've been invited to their house for dinners. We've been invited to their house for cookouts. I mean, it really is um, a community group in the fact that we're out there and letting them know who we are. They know our families. That has alleviated any of those issues that we may come across with theft or um, anything in that case. And to be honest with you, theft happens more often from the employees, which we've had a lot of issues with. Um, more so than actually having to worry about outside people coming in for theft. 
Oh, that's fascinating. So yeah, that was my, that was my second concern. It's like, you know, the kind of person that wants to work a graveyard shift at a liquor store, um, you know, is, is not my, <laughs> no, no, <laughs> choice. you know, it's, it seems like there's some natural conflicts there when you're trying to hire someone who's, you know, trustworthy. I don't mean to paint with too broad a brush, but it seems like, you know, someone who, who wants to work graveyard shift at a liquor store, uh, you may be working with a level of talent that's that's not as discerning, perhaps, as, as in other places. How do you how do you find and source great people for a business that works non traditional hours in sort of a non traditional industry? Well, we try to incentivize them with bonuses, um, holiday bonuses. Um, try to make sure that we give them one or two weeks paid vacation. Uh, it's been tougher and tougher now in the state of Massachusetts. Minimum wage continues to go up. I believe it's going to thirteen dollars an hour beginning January 1st. And then in 2020, I think 2022, it's supposed to go to $15. So that's caused, you know, a little bit of uh, compression again on margins, but it's really just making sure that we're honest with them and we give them their expectations up front. I find it a lot of times if I actually personally do the training, if I can go down on a weekend, I'll train the new hires and I'll tell them this is what you do. Cause I think that's one of the biggest issues is they're not trained properly. So they don't know what to do. So that's why they're lacking the necessary skills. Yeah. That's kind of what, you know, that's where I see, but a lot of them are, I mean, in the business we're in, we're looking for help anytime we can get on a Sunday or a Saturday. So we get college kids. We're in a area in West it's Westfield, Massachusetts, where they have Westfield state university. And um, we get some college kids that come and work for us a couple of days a week. And it, it is one of those things that's very nerve wracking because who knows if they are going to sell to their buddies. So we have the cameras. I have it on my phone. I try not to look at it all the time when I'm with my wife and my daughters. But sometimes you have to just to make sure that, you know, a couple, a couple of their 18, 19 year old buddies aren't coming in and they're serving them. So there is a big big issue that I have. And it's, it's something that just is an industry in general that you have to be aware of is selling to minors, especially in a community that has a lot of younger individuals with the university there. Sure. I, um, I worked at Baskin Robbins when I was in high school uh, and I gave away so much free ice cream to my friends. I don't think I could ever, I, I just want to apologize publicly to Baskin Robbins for giving away <laughs> thousands of dollars of free ice cream to my buddies. Um, but yeah, you're you're playing with much higher stakes there when there's uh, you know a, contro- a controlled substance involved that has you know legal protections and legal ramifications. It's a m- much different animal. You know, it's interesting. I, I think it's brilliant how you've integrated yourself into your community as sort of a, a, a preventative measure against theft and, and ill will. I, I saw some research, a study that came out recently about neighborhoods that were, you know, purported to be dangerous. And so shop fronts would have these kind of metal grates that would roll down in front. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what, what they found was that actually the prevalence of, of robbery increased with these metal grates that would roll down in front because it was this sort of broken glass phenomenon. Like the neighborhood was reputed to be, you know, bad or scary or crime-ridden. The storefronts reflected this sort of crime-ridden reputation by being all barred up. And then people, you know, acted in such a, it became a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like, this is a crummy neighborhood. Look, even the storefronts are boarded up. We're going to act as if it's crummy. And so what they did was they actually went out into the community. Um, they took pictures of some of the youth and they <clears throat> they painted pictures of, of young people from the community uh, and, and babies from the community on the front of these storefronts, got these mural artists to come do this. 
And they, they really, in a very real sense, just made the store represent and reflect the community in which it sat and crime decreased precipitously. So I think, you know, our, our initial reflex is to go to things like, you know, cameras and, you know, the little monitors and things that beep and tags and things like that. But it's an interesting preventative measure to say, no, we're going to, we're going to assume the best of our community. We're going to become a member of the community and make sure that our store reflects the values and the people in that community. I think that's a, that's a cool behavioral trick. And it's also just a, a more generous, humane way to go to market. I, I really love that. Um, um, I agree with you ahead. 100%. And even think of the financial industry, right? There's one or two, you get those one or two bad advisors that you hear um, on the financial advisor um, network or wherever it may be. And then that's where the DOL came to be. So it's, it's interesting how it plays out if you just get one or two uh, issues, then all of a sudden everyone's deemed this way, even though that's not the case. And it's the same thing in the community. You might have one or two people who may try to break in. I mean, we haven't had anybody try to break into our building. We've been there for almost 10 years. Ah, that's incredible. So, you know, you, you made a nice segue there to, to bringing the sort of the lessons of the, of the liquor industry into the lessons of finance. Mm-hmm. You know, we in, we in finance are at a time of great change, you know, um, Fees for asset managers are dropping about 10% year over year. Uh, the number of financial advisors is shrinking precipitously. Um, you know, the number of young advisors hasn't really kept up as people are, are going to fields like technology and other places where they, they perceive the grass to be greener. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like in the liquor industry too, margins are shrinking, the rich are getting richer. I mean, this very much uh, reflects, I think, what we see, at, at least in the asset management industry, uh, how have you have have you found any ways to anticipate these changes? Are you actively on the lookout for these changes, or do you feel like you're just sort of rolling with these punches as as they come? How do you think about adapting to change in markets generally, uh, whether it be finance or or the liquor business? So finance or the liquor business? Um, yeah, I mean, in definitely in the financial field, it's funny because I am dealing with that exact issue right now where I have two older advisors that work with me and there's not a lot of young advisors in our area. I've actually been searching for a couple, couple years now to find a younger advisor to come on board and work with me. And you are correct. Most of them want to go to, for us, it's General Dynamics or Raytheon or a lot of these companies that give you guarantees. And they look at the financial industry in general as an uphill battle. And I, I think with changes to the DOL, changes to the way we conduct our business, uh, compliance issues, the paperwork that's involved with it, it's, um, you know, it, it's, it's a lot to deal with. But I still think this industry, the financial services industry, is one of the best industries to be in. And I, you know, when I look at the landscape going forward, uh, this presidential election is going to be a big indicator, right? Uh, it all depends on who's going to be nominated. Um, I have clients that continually ask me, and I'm sure you have people that talk to you all the time. You know, what do you think? Where, where do you think we're going? The Fed with the rates. I mean, there's always questions. There's always uh, political noise going around, which really can affect our business going forward. So to anticipate it is easier said than done, I think. I think you just have to be fluid in what you do for your work and make sure that you're taking care of your clients. This is on the financial side. You're doing, you're, you have the best interest of your clients. And on the liquor store side, um, in Massachusetts, it's a little different. So the way liquor stores work is that each state dictates kind of the rules and regulations. 
if you go down to the South to North Carolina, you know, you have all those ABC liquors and you have just liquor stores and then you have beer and wine stores in Massachusetts, you have beer, wine, and liquor. And you could, you used to be only have three licenses in the state. Then it was five this year. It's seven next year. It's nine. So they're starting to increase. And that's where I was kind of talking to you about the fact that it's starting to become tougher because now you get the bigger companies like um, Costco's um, a couple, there's a total wine, which I'm not sure if you've heard of, but it's a pretty large entity and they're starting to buy up seven, nine licenses throughout the state. And that's where they start to get that volume and they can purchase a thousand cases of whatever wine it is to get the deepest price and then charge 50 cents over cost. As a small business, like we have at a liquor store, we can't keep up with that cost because our margins will go down to zero. So I, I think it's tough to anticipate the changes because I think they're changing all the time. And really to get clarity on it, especially in the financial landscape, um, a big indicator will be next year of who's going to be the candidate on the Democratic side. What are some new policies coming into play? Um, but I personally have been moving all my business to fee-based because that's the way the way that I've been pushing and way that I've been told to push um, for most of my clients, but I do give them the option. I think commission-based products are two of the older advisors I work with. That's pretty much what they do is all commission-based A-share products. And now it's, I'm transitioning into another avenue. Um, and most of the clients that I work with are very happy about that. So it's kind of where it's what I think with the anticipating changes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things that I've loved, you know, I was uh, I was on my own for about a decade. And one of the things that I've uh, loved about being a small business owner was taking some of uh, the lessons I learned as an entrepreneur and applying them to other parts of my life. Um, are there lessons you've learned through either being a financial professional and, and uh, running that business or running your business at, at the liquor store that you think are germane to other parts of life or markets? Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I've always is never turned down an opportunity to meet somebody. Um, you know, somebody I, I've had clients that come in to meet with me or even the liquor store and they're, they got work boots on, dirty shirt, dirty, everything. Just they look filthy. And then you get a chance to talk to them and you find out that they own a $5 million construction company. And I, I think that people are always so quick to judge when you meet somebody and you look at them, right? I think we all do that. It's kind of a human nature. You with your psychology background, right? You see somebody, you usually you kind of judge them within the first 10, 15 seconds until you actually get a chance to talk to them and meet them just based how they look and their presentation. And um, I've realized that you got to get more than that. You got to talk to somebody. You got to get to hear their story and hear what they do. And I've translated that from the liquor store to the investment world, but also just to life in general, because everyone has uh, amazing stories. I remember riding down on the um, train down to New York City. I took the Amtrak from Hudson and talked to a guy who was really neat. My wife was like, why are you talking to him? And he ended up, he was one of the co-owners of Chobani. Never knew who was. And do you know what Chobani is? The yogurt. Yeah. 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 So, um, he was one of the co-owners and ended up getting bought out for a lot of money. And we just started talking on how he got into it. Never knew who he was, but it was just a conversation. We had a three hour train ride. My wife was sleeping. So I said, Hey, I'm just going to, you know, let's have talk with this guy. And um, it was a, a great conversation. And I like to use it as my example because my wife always gives me nudges when I talk too much. But I find that everyone has a unique story and um, you should always be willing to listen to them. 
you know, one of the things that I found as a therapist is related was that everyone's likable when, when you hear their full story. Like there were clients, you know, I'm not proud to admit this, but there were clients that I had in a clinical setting that were very annoying to me at first. Like, you know, you'd meet with them, they would be abrasive, they would be obnoxious, they would be, you know, complaining, what, you know, whatever it is. And you're like, wow, this person is kind of difficult. And, you know, the next week they would pop up on your schedule and you'd like, oh, really? Uh, but, but universally when I had heard their full story, when they had opened up to me, when we had shared, when we had had deep conversations, universally, they became likable to me. And that's one of my just top lessons for life is that no one sort of gets out of bed in the morning to, you know, to make you upset or to rub you the wrong way. Everyone's just doing the best they can given their life circumstances and, and, you know, sort of the the pitches that life has thrown them. And so, yeah, not, getting past those initial preconceptions that are just sort of shortcuts for us to move through the world. You never know what someone has to offer, what they've seen, what they've done in life. I think that's a, a great way to, to move through the world. Yeah, nope, I agree. And, and for my business, that's been extremely beneficial because those individuals that you, like you said, preconceive and say, hey, nope, this isn't somebody I want to work with because I have a $250,000 minimum and they, they're not going to have it you talk to him. And like you said, this guy had a $5 million construction business. So it's just, again, having these conversations, that's why you go to networking events. And again, I think a lot of people, you know, unfortunately don't do that. They don't give people the benefit of the doubt or they don't even take the time to listen to people. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things I've, I've done a couple of uh, podcast episodes now about writing a book because it seems like everybody wants to write a book. Well, the, the other thing that everyone wants to do is start a small business. You know, everyone watches Shark Tank. Um, everyone thinks just like they think they've got this great idea for a book. I think everyone thinks they've got this next invention or this next, this next business that could be a success. Um, if you, as a small business owner, if you could give people two or three questions to sort of introspect on and to ask themselves before starting a business, how, what would you tell them to consider to gauge their readiness to go out on their own? Well, I think first, if you are, have a family, which you and I do, I think you need to have first and foremost support from your family because anytime you have a small business, you are putting in a multitude of hours. People think you're making millions of dollars and not seeing all the work you're putting behind the scenes of working 60, 70, 80 hours, doing payroll at midnight, um, doing the bank reconciliations, going to the bank and making deposits, just doing every little thing and wearing multiple hats. People don't see that. So I think if you have the support from your family, especially your spouse, then that's the first thing that I make sure, you know, that people understand is that everyone needs to be on the same page. Um, two would be make sure that you know the time, make sure you know how to manage your time in a, in a positive way. The one thing that I really pride myself on is playing college football at Trinity time management, right? I mean, we didn't have a lot of time. So when we had to get our homework done, we had tests to study for, we had practice, we had lifting, we had, uh, workouts in the off season. It's really about managing time in your world. You're an extremely busy, busy, busy person in right? You have to have time management and you have to be really efficient at that. Because if you're not, you won't be successful in business. You have to be able to know how much time and effort you can put into something. And that's something that you should look at before you open a business is what kind of time management, what kind of time am I going to have to allocate to make sure this is a successful 
whatever it is, if it's a product or a technology or really whatever it may be. Those are kind of the two large pieces that I would take away from business ownership. Uh, th- three would be going back to, if you ever decide to work with family, <laughs> make sure you guys are all on the same page. Because I can tell you that has been maybe the toughest thing that I've endured over the last 10 years is just dealing with family, um, the g- pro and con, good and bad. Um, sometimes family, you know, my brother may, may work more than I do, so he feels entitled. Or I work more than him, so I feel entitled to something. And um, I think it's having transparency, open conversations, and making sure we're on the same page. Because um, I worked with a lot of family businesses, and I do have a family business, so I know the struggles that they go through. But if everyone has the same goals and objectives, then they'll be successful. Yeah. So I, you know, first of all, I want to echo one thing you said that that entrepreneurship is a family uh, family involvement. You know, as we speak, my wife is at the post office, you know, which is effectively hell on earth. And she's dropping, she's dropping off 50 packages, you know, full of, full of promotional items for a new, uh, for a new tech venture we're doing at Brinker Capital. And so, you know, yes, absolutely. Everyone gets involved. Everyone gets involved with the ups and downs of the business. Everyone ends up pitching in whether your, you know, names on the door or not. So that's, I think, a smart thing to consider. I'll say another thing. I'll answer. I'll answer my own question. One thing that worked well for me uh, early on when starting my own business was covering the downside. So when I first decided to, you know, leave my full time employment and and jump to self employment, you know, I was twenty nine years old. It was in the midst of the Great Recession. I mean, I was sort of on paper, it was not a great time to to do these things. I was young and inexperienced and in, in, in a bad economy. Uh, but what I did was I didn't take the leap until I had uh, a contract that was large enough that my family wouldn't starve, basically. You know, it was enough to to keep the lights on. And I protected that downside so that, you know, the worst case wasn't all that bad. And if you look at uh, a, a case study from, from the Great Recession as well, uh, Hyundai was the only auto manufacturer who had good sales during the Great Recession. And what they did was, again, they limited the downside. They said, look, if you buy a Hyundai and you lose your job, we will take it back. No questions asked. And so people are two and a half times as, as scared about losing something as they are gaining something. So for the listeners who are thinking about starting a new venture, I would really recommend thinking about creative ways to sort of cover, cover the downside risk to protect yourself first and then move from there onto the, onto the big dream. Yeah, I think that's that's actually a great analogy and taking it from, like you said, the Great Recession. I didn't realize that Hyundai did that um, during that point in time. Yeah, yeah, it's a great, uh, great sort of Harvard Harvard Business School case study on how they were the only ones who increased their sales then because people were panicked, right? Like people were panicked into an action, uh, and they took they took the worst case off the table. So anytime you can take that worst case off the table, I think you're in a good spot. So as we as we begin to close up here, you you mentioned being a college football player. Now, what what position did you play? So my first two years, I played inside linebacker, and my next two, I played tight end. How how big are you? Uh, when I played football, I was six two two fifty when I played. I'm six two about two twenty now. So I've uh, I've I've gotten rid of some of the bulk that I don't need anymore, and uh, 
do a little more yoga and things like that to make sure I'm still pliable and flexible to keep my daughters entertained. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. So you learn time management skills as a, as a football player at Trinity. You know, now you're a father, you're a spouse, you're an advisor, you're a youth sports coach, you sit on the board of four different nonprofits, you've got this liquor store. Um, I read that and I just get tired, right? So how do you balance, how do you balance doing all that you want to do professionally with being the kind of dad and husband and community member that you want to be? It goes goes back to what we've been talking about pretty much a lot. This conversation is just family. Um, my wife is a first grade teacher. So um, she has the summers off and a little more flexibility with her schedule, but she is always a supporter of what I do. So I coach, I've coached uh, youth sports. I, the league I played in when I was a kid, I've come back and I've coached there. I was the president of that board. I worked on a merger with the local um, YMCA and I've coached that uh, league for 10 years now. And it's just really having a good support system. We also live in the same town as my, my mom, my dad, my stepmom, uh, my mother-in-law. So we have a lot of family support that comes and watches the kids and helps out. And it gives me the opportunity to really go to these networking events, be involved in the nonprofits. And, you know, with the nonprofits, a lot of the times, you know, a lot of people join boards for networking or whatever it may be to meet people. I join it because I believe in the entity. Um, a lot of the boards that I'm on, I believe in the actual byproduct. I believe in what their purpose is. If I meet people as part of my business, that's great, but that's not my overall objective. And, um, you know, being a financial advisor, kind of going back to that question, you said, would I advise my children to go into the liquor business? As a financial advisor, you have a lot more flexibility. We can work from home. We can work in the office. Everything, most stuff is done remotely. So that gives me more time management right there. Um, you know, if you go back to that liquor store question, you have to physically be there. It's a big difference of physically being in the location compared to being able to work remotely. And I guess that's one of the, back to another question is anticipating changes. Everything we do now is remote. It's all electronic. And uh, you see that happening more and more, which again, artificial intelligence, things like that could come into play. But um, I think me making this move into the financial services world about six years ago has been a phenomenal move for me and my family. It's allowed me to do exactly what we talked about, be a father, be a spouse, be an advisor, continue doing work for my business, also coaching and being part of nonprofits. And, um, oh, go ahead. Would you care to send a shout out to any of the nonprofits you work with, these causes that you believe in? Yeah, yeah. So one of them is the local YMCA. Mm -hmm. The other one is called Pittsfield Beautiful. It is a phenomenal organization. Uh, I will say I'm half the age of most of the members. They're mostly retired, so their meetings are 10 and 11 in the morning. But um during the fall and during the summer, we buy flowers and we plant them all throughout the community. Um, we do it as a nonprofit. We raise funds and we buy plants and we go around do a couple planting days to help the downtown areas of where we, we live. Um, the other one is the CRA, which is Community Recreational Activity Center, which is in my local town and my daughter swims there. It's, um, it's like a local youth center. And the last one is the Pittsfield Education Foundation. My wife is a teacher in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, and um, it's a great foundation. It allows teachers to go and do, you know, extra programs that the budget won't allow them to do. One, of, one person we sent to Chicago for an English language learner course that the city was not willing to pay for. 
So it gives teachers the opportunity to go and re refine and retune their skills and bring that back. And they do a presentation for us of what, what they did, what they've learned, and then they apply it to their classroom the following year. So a lot of great stuff. A lot of it, a lot of it involves working with younger kids, which I think is always the, the, the backbone of where our, you know, our community will be going forward, especially you have three kids. So I'm sure you understand that as well. I, absolutely. And there's a, there's a reason why Massachusetts has the best schools in the country. And it's because of, you know, uh, organizations like the one you mentioned and because of the hard work of, of people like your, your wife. So that's, that's fantastic. So uh, Corey, just as a last question, I always like to give listeners something uh, practical they can do or, you know, some, something they can take away. So as an action step, is there a book you'd recommend or a tip for financial wellness, something that the people listening can, can uh, work on and apply this week? So uh, one of the books that, uh, you know, most uh, individuals uh, you know, for Guardian is a big book is Simon Sinek. Why? And I'm sure you've read it. I'm sure it's probably one of your most recommended books. I know a lot of people in my circle have read it. And really what, it, what it's about is just figuring out what your purpose in life is. Why do you do what you do? And I think that's the hardest thing for people to, to figure out, right? Why do I go to work every day? Why do I do what I do? And, and if you find an inner purpose of why you're doing this, then I think your day is going to be better. Your life's going to be better. You're going to enjoy your job more. You're going to just appreciate more things that you have in your life. I think sometimes you see social media and we compare ourselves to other people on social media. And, it, you know, social media has been a good and bad thing, I think, for most of us. But I think if you look at the, the why and you start to appreciate what you have in life and why you do what you do, I think people really have clarity to their perspective. And uh, it's a great book. I would recommend anybody to read it. It's not a long book either. So um, it's definitely worth the read. It is a great book and it's, you know, it's popular for a reason. Yes. I mean, you know, a lot of people love it. I think his Ted talk is, if not the most watched, certainly one of the most watched Ted talks of all time. And, you know, there's a very good reason it's popular uh, because if you can figure out that why and couch the rest of your, of your work within that why everything suddenly gets a lot easier uh, mm -hmm. and a lot more fulfilling. So I think it's a, a great recommendation. So, uh, Corey, you are the, the busiest guy in finance. So we thank you for your time and thank you for your insights today on how we can uh, learn the lessons of entrepreneurship, apply them to our lives, uh, and, and be as busy and doing good as you are. So thank you so much for your time. Daniel, thank you. It was a pleasure to finally connect. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, and its affiliates, subsidiaries, employees, and agents. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information participants consider reliable and Dr. Crosby and Guardian are not responsible for the consequences of any decisions or actions taken because of the information provided. Guardian Trademark and the Guardian G Trademark logo are registered service marks and are used with express permission. All materials are subject to United States copyright laws. Copyright 2018 Guardian.
Corey Phillips is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ 160 Gold Street, Suite 310, Needham, Massachusetts, 02494, phone number 781-449-4402. Securities, products, and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, copyright Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a direct wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. The Bullfinch Group LLC is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. Life insurance offered through the Bullfinch Group Insurance Agency LLC an affiliate of the Bullfinch Group, LLC. The Bullfinch Group, LLC, is not licensed to sell insurance. California Insurance License Number 0L24669. Guardian and its subsidiaries do not endorse or have any direct or indirect responsibility with respect to Corey's retail store activities or board positions. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by PAS, Guardian, or the Bullfinch Group, and opinions stated are their own. 2021-119605, expiration 4-23.